Our scripture lesson today begins at Matthew 5, verse 38. This is the uh, fourth Sunday in a row that we're reading something from the Sermon on the Mount, which is the inaugural teaching that Jesus provided. He is seated on a mountain with his initial disciples surround him and then a crowd um, looking on a little bit fanned out from where they were. So Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others do? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Over the past four Sundays, without consciously planning a sermon series, Casey and I have more or less provided a series on the Sermon on the Mount. I covered the Beatitudes on January 29th, Blessed are the poor, the meek, those who mourn. On February 5th, I followed with a sermon on these vaulted phrases in the Sermon on the Mount, the light of the world, the city on a hill, and salt of the earth. Then Casey followed last week with a reading of the entire Sermon on the Mount, three chapters at the outset of the Gospel of Matthew, providing us a rare opportunity, as she says, to sit with the text and let it become a part of us. Today I want to conclude this accidental series with an attempt to say how I have come to believe that the Sermon of the Mount can indeed be central to our faith, particularly as we live between the world as we know it and the world as God has redeemed it to be in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, save me from stammering or being heavy of mouth, and let those who have ears to hear here. In the name of our living Redeemer, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So the Sermon on the Mount has its share of challenging phrases. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other as well. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give them your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go a second mile. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Give to everyone who begs from you. 
And do not refuse anyone who asks to borrow from you. Some Christian traditions take these passages literally. Refusing to strike back if attacked. Refusing to defend others, even family members, if they are attacked. Refusing to serve in any kind of military effort or institution. Other Christians take these sayings with near literalness. I know a professor of preaching in the Presbyterian Church who does not own a car, who always rents the smallest apartment in which he and his wife can live, and who always carries a few dollars in his not recently purchased slacks so as to give to everyone who might beg of him. While Maggie and I live anything but a sacrificial lifestyle, we do almost always stop and give a dollar or two to the first person who asks us outside of Starbucks downtown or on Half Street walking in to Nats Stadium. There's something at least momentarily satisfying, perhaps even holy, in doing what Jesus did, in doing what Jesus taught us to do. But rarely do I turn the other cheek, particularly if the one struck is a person or a nation in need of rescue or defense, who need intervention provided by diplomats, asylum granters, police, or military, who need a wise and measured use of the power of the state or states to contain, if not conquer, the evil with which they have been beset. On a lighter note, at least one commentator has pointed out that if a defendant responded to a lawsuit by giving both coat and cloak to the plaintiff, at the end of the trial, the defendant would be left standing in front of judge and jury with no clothing at all. Judge Judy would not approve. Preachers and teachers have from time to time sought to address the gap between the demands of these words of Jesus and the world in which we understand and live them out. As I said in the first sermon in this series, some have said that the Sermon on the Mount is more a picture of life to come, life in heaven, than it is life on earth. Some have said the sermon constitutes more of a moral code for church or monastery or utopian religious community than it does for the marketplace, the boardroom, or negotiations between nations or battles between their troops. Some have said the Sermon on the Mount expresses aspirations and ideals, a universal moral code that is placed before us to call forth our best human and spiritual effort, no matter what culture in which we live, no matter what God we worship. And some have said that the Sermon on the Mount contains strategies for advancing Christian faith in the world, such as turning the other cheek was an effective tool of freedom riders in the South. And 
carrying of coats of Roman soldiers was an effective way of early Christians to curry favor with those who ruled over them and to perhaps escape persecution in the process. These are legitimate derivations and usages of the Sermon on the Mount. Yet in my opinion, none of these is quite complete. So what is the truest purpose of the Sermon on the Mount for us? I'd like to get at that purpose by sharing two conversations that I had this week. One with a live person over lunch, the other through the pages of a book. I think these two conversations can help me get at how I think the Sermon on the Mount can best function for us. I had a long scheduled lunch this past Wednesday with David Rennick, who's the pastor of National Presbyterian Church in D.C. David has something that I lack, but in an un Ten Commandments, Sermon on the Mount sort of way, I envy. He has a Ph.D. in New Testament. We were talking about an ironic challenge, what an ironic challenge it has been to preach the Sermon on the Mount in this divisive political environment in which we live. As the conversation evolved, he shared that two of his professors at Union Seminary in Richmond had taught him that when the word righteousness appears in Matthew, as it does in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But David said his professor said that when the word righteousness appears in Matthew, it doesn't simply mean the absolute and uncompromising will of God. It means doing the right thing at the right time in the right circumstances. In other words, righteousness involves choice and wisdom. Wisdom and choice, something that we call discernment. I immediately thought of Joseph in Matthew, the same gospel in which the Sermon on the Mount appears. Joseph, the young man, described as righteous, who when he finds his fiancée Mary with child, resolves to divorce her, but to do so in a way that spares her public humiliation, religious shaming, or even stoning by death by stoning, which are the more strict and absolute applications of the religious law of the day. Thus, being righteous for Joseph involved coming to a decision to do the right thing at the right time in the right way. It did not involve following the law in its most literal and strict sense. And the movement towards mercy at which Joseph arrived was soon ratified by an angel of the Lord who appeared to Joseph and said, Do not be afraid to take Mary 
as your wife. That same evening, after my conversation over lunch with David Rennick, I was working my way through a biography of Moses that I'm currently reading by a wonderful Jewish scholar named Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg. I want you to follow me through Moses for a while in this sermon because it is going to circle back to the Sermon on the Mount. Zornberg points out that Moses is an amazing human and spiritual figure. Born Hebrew, rescued out of the Nile and raised in the court of Egypt, called by God to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, but for reasons that are never entirely made clear in the scriptures, forbidden by God from leading them into the promised land himself, recipient and conveyor of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, the commandments on which the Sermon on the Mount is modeled, yet hindered throughout his life, despite being a leader, hindered by a tremendous inability to speak which scholars and artists and various interpreters have interpreted as a stammer, a speech impediment, a lack of spiritual confidence because of his own dual identity as Hebrew and Egyptian, or as the text simply says, Moses' own heaviness of mouth, heaviness of speech. In addition, throughout the first five books of the Bible, we see Moses as an anointer of the temple and therefore as recipient, at least momentarily, of the title of priest. We see him at least at one place referred to as king. And yet we also see him instructed by God to turn his priestly vestments over and place them on Aaron, his older brother, And we see God instructing Moses to choose his own political successor, Joshua. Thus, though Aaron becomes priest, and though Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land, despite not having that power or those privileges, Moses is remembered in Scripture by this characterization. The man Moses was very humble, or devout, more so than anyone else on the face of the earth. Humble and devout, greater than anyone else on the face of the earth. Greater than Noah, greater than Abraham, greater than Joshua, greater than Ruth greater than King David, greater than King Solomon, greater than Esther, despite not entering the promised land, despite not being a high priest, despite not being a king, Moses was more devout, greater than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now the reason Moses was greater, according to Zornberg, is that Moses brought to the people of Israel and to the human race The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the scriptures of their faith, the scriptures on which the Sermon on the Mount would be based centuries later. 
humble and devout, greater than anyone else on the face of the earth, because ironically, he brought the gift of Scripture. When Moses passed the priestly role and garment to his brother Aaron, among the instructions that God gives Moses concerning this gift of Scripture is this. You shall speak to all who have ability, to all whom I have endowed with skill. Now in this particular instance, God is talking to Moses about instructing people who have the skill to make and knit and sew these priestly garments. But in a larger role, since God is describing Moses' role of providing the Torah, providing the teachings of God's will to everyone who has the ability to hear them, the ability to receive them, the ability to use them with wisdom and choice and discernment. The scriptures are given to all of us because we have the ability to do the right thing at the right time in the right way. That is their purpose for us. Right thing, right time, right way choice, and wisdom. In Psalm 119, verse 92, the psalmist says, If your law had not been my delight, if your teaching had not been the source of my playfulness, I would have perished in my misery. While in our translation, The psalmist is speaking these words to God. Zornberg points out that some Jewish scholars over the centuries have interpreted these words as being spoken by God to Moses as he delivers the teachings to the people. In this interpretation, God is saying to Moses, if your teachings had not been my play, I should have perished in my poverty. If it were not for the teaching that I gave to you, I would have lost my world. In this line of interpretation, Moses is called the most humble and devout person on the face of the earth because no matter what is going on in his life, no matter what is going on in the life of the people of Israel, no matter what is going on in the life of the world, Moses has served the teaching of God above all else. He has kept the Torah alive through his spiritual, organic relationship to it. A relationship that involves joy, imagination, creativity, even a sense of playfulness. 
by keeping the scriptures alive, Moses has spared God from dying of a broken heart. If your Torah had not been my plague, I should have perished in my own poverty. Now the rest of this is from me, and it may be heretical, it may be way out of bounds, but I'm going to make this connection anyway. Transferring Moses' experience to the Sermon on the Mount, I believe it is fair to say that we in the Christian community who seek to keep alive the teachings of Jesus Christ, inspired by the teachings of Moses, to keep them alive with joy, with creativity, with imagination, even with our playfulness in the world, as unplayful as our world can be. But as we seek to teach them alive, we serve not only to mend our own hearts, not only to put our own lives, quote, right with God, not only to put ourselves in the presence of God, but we might actually serve in keeping God's holy heart from breaking. And we might actually thereby extend God's life in the world and by implication our own lives as well. As playful, organic, and as creative as keeping alive the teachings of Jesus turn out to be, it is not an overstatement to say that the fate of the world, that God's fate may depend on keeping the teachings alive, keeping the Torah alive, keeping alive in our world the Sermon on the Mount. If your sermon had not been my source of play, I would have perished in my poverty. The right thing at the right time in the right way. We can do it. And our doing it just may serve to let God see another day.